You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. So recently I was cruising around industrialartifacts.net when I saw a fascinating item, a clock. Okay, that might not sound like much, but for one thing, it's a really beautiful clock. Old wood with an elegant dial and typeface resting upon a lighted glass sign, which reads, For the relief of muscular pain, Red Cross Plaster, Johnson & Johnson. What the heck is a Red Cross Plaster, I wondered. Well, it turns out that Robert Wood Johnson of Johnson & Johnson got his start making medical plasters, large patches of sticky India rubber, laced with various ingredients which were to be applied to the body in various places for the treatment of just about anything. Colds and aches, injuries and kidney troubles. The active ingredients of the plasters varied. Most were full of mustard seed and capsaicin to heat sore muscles. But some also included more questionable things like opium or belladonna, aka deadly nightshade, which is fatal in moderate doses but only causes hallucinations in smaller ones. Whether Johnson & Johnson's medical plasters were relaxing your sore shoulders or making you think there were spiders crawling all over them, there was one thing you could count on them to do. Irritate the crap out of your skin. Eventually, the company's scientific director, Fred Kilmer, began sending out boxes of talcum powder to their many complaining customers, who were so happy with it that they began asking to purchase it directly so that they could treat their infant's diaper rash. Thus, Johnson's baby powder was first patented in 1893. Pretty cool, huh? Industrial Artifacts is like a living weird history bazaar. They've got hundreds of antique signs, clocks, and sundries with stories just begging to be told. There's antique lighting and furniture, as well as new pieces built from found materials and objects, all of which are perfect for your home, office, restaurant, or bar. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter code THECONSTANT, one word, at checkout. If you follow the link in the episode notes, you can see, or even buy, the Red Cross lighted glass clock. It's a cool conversation piece that you now have the conversation to go with. So, follow that link, or just go to industrialartifacts.net, and remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout to get 15% off your first order. This isn't audio from NASA, or an experimental flight test, although that is what it's going for. It's the intro to a 70s television series. Okay, Victor. Landing 
The Six Million Dollar Man. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. For those who've never watched it, don't. It's very bad. Steve Austin will be that man. For those who have, let me tell you, it's worse than you remember. Let's take Season 4, Episode 18 as an example. Carnival of Spies begins with our star, Lee Majors, who at this point in the series is sporting a pencil mustache only John Waters could love, being called in by his government wrangler, Oscar, to glad-hand a suspicious East German rocket scientist. This is already one of the most low-key stupid tropes of the show. Our hero, Colonel Steve Austin, is styled as a rebellious, got-no-strings-to-hold-me-down gadabout, who nevertheless spends most of his time yes-sirring for federal toadies. But let's focus on that suspicious East German rocket scientist, who, upon meeting Steve, bites down on some sort of spy pill that puts him into mild cardiac arrest. This is all done so that, well, I don't really know. But obviously the scientist is a communist spy with nefarious designs on American freedom, so Steve tails him to find and foil the scheme which probably has to do with a rapidly approaching B-2 bomber test flight, somehow. Evil commie scientist and his handlers try to give any potential shadows the slip by jumping into a V-bottom boat and jetting across a bay, but little do they know that their tracker is equipped with bionic legs that allow him to turbo-doggy kick after them on top of a broken street sign. For the uninitiated, every time Steve uses his superpowers, the shot has to go into slow motion, and this sound effect plays. The series is fully 20% slow motion ticky 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 ticky. Time that might have been spent on plot or character development, although maybe it's best that it wasn't. When Steve reaches the other side of the water, he finds himself in a surprising scene. A carnival. Evil commie scientist, believing he's free from any stalkers, he repeatedly and expressly states, no normal human being could have followed me, which is a real Clintonian sentiment, gets down to his evil commie science plot by going to a fortune teller who is actually an East German engineer and spy. Steve Austin follows him into the tent and with his superhuman bionic espionage abilities, flatly asks the fortune teller if she's seen a German guy who just came through. Luckily for him, this fortune teller is just filling in for the spy, and because she's young, attractive, and blonde, she instantly falls all over herself to help Colonel Steve Austin in whatever way she can. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Anywho, she gets captured by some gun-toting no-name, and Steve saves her with his ticky-ticky hands. The two return to the carnival, where the rides are acting all weird, because, as Steve brilliantly and somewhat impossibly deduces, the whole of the carnival is, in actuality, one big surface-to-air missile fortification. The carousel is a radar dish. The Ferris wheel is... also a radar dish, I guess. The roller coaster is really a... who the hell knows? The point is, it's all a rusky ruse. 
a covert plot to shoot down the experimental B-2 bomber. And if our hero, Colonel Steve Austin, wants to stop it, he'll have to bionically punch a whole bunch of people. And so he does. Threat extinguished. Girl rescued. Witty one-liner. Arm around the blonde's waist. Sustained theatrical laughter. Crane shot. Pan out. The end. It is the kind of lazy television that they just don't let you make anymore, unless you're Tim Allen. Take that, Tim Allen. (laughs) Oh, fucking feel that one, can't ya? Didn't know fruit could hang that low. The whole story is premised around this amusement park. It was filmed on location at the Pike in Long Beach, California, which was brimming with potential set piece moments. There was the Long Beach Pier. Maybe you could have some sort of car chase with a jump into the ocean. There was the Wild Bobs, an old wooden coaster begging for some mid-ride fisticuffs. The Sky Wheel, a double Ferris wheel perfect for a fingertip dangle. At the least, you could have plopped in a second-act foot pursuit through the crazy maze House of Mirrors. But nope, none of that. For all the use the production team gets out of the pike, they might as well have shot the show with painted stick-figure backdrops. What's most nettling about the sheer banality of Carnival of Spies is how they not only failed to do anything interesting with the surroundings, but how they went out of their way to avoid anything interesting. For instance, they set the mad commie scientist's control center inside one of the rides at the Pike, an attraction called the Laugh in the Dark. That's laugh with two Fs. This was one of those poorly lit indoor motorized rides where you sit in a small car as it shimmies and scuffles through creepy and typically broken animatronic ghosts and goblins. What a cool, weird place to shoot your mad Missile Man headquarters, right? And talk about a setting for a thrilling action climax. But what did the director do when the crew got inside the Laugh in the Dark and saw all the robots and puppets he had to work with? He ordered them removed. Everything but one red-eyed giant gorilla statue that sits in the background, barely discernible from the black floor and walls. It is an inexcusable shame. Who directed this piece of crap? Dick Motor? Who's that? I hope he's not still working. Oh, oh, he's dead. My condolences. But really, can you imagine seeing all this cool stuff and not wanting to use any of it? Hey, Dick, where do you want this giant red-headed robot that cackles maniacally? Get it out of here. What about this glow-in-the-dark skeleton that pops out of a barrel? Off of my set. All right, Dicky. but what about this? This really seems like it might be something. It's like a creepy mummy hanging from a noose. Maybe Lee could give it a good knock and I said lose it. So, our nameless, fully fictionalized prop master shrugged and had it all carted out of the laugh in the dark. Laughing Sal and Laughing Sam, giggling Gertie and Blackie the Barker, and even the super spooky hanging mummy mannequin, which he grabbed by the arm and... Whoa, it just fell right off. Wait, what's that? Is that... bone? Oh, God. That's no mannequin. See, the thing that drives me crazy about Carnival of Spies isn't just the general hum of mediocrity that is 1970s network action television or the missed opportunities for obvious set-piece action shots. It's that this humdrum, uninspired 47 minutes of television treacle gets to be the capstone from one of the most fantastic tales of all time. When that prop master tore down that presumed puppet, 
he discovered that it was an actual, mummified human body. And the story of how it ended up in a busted-down carnival ride is so much better than any network television schlock could ever hope to be. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The $46 Man. The crew of The $6 Million Man called the cops. And I can't decide if that was the proper course of action or if it was totally ridiculous, because, after all, what are you supposed to do when the arm of a mummified corpse of a man, 60 years dead, painted glow-in-the-dark red and hung from an amusement park noose, breaks off in your hand? The police delivered the corpse to the L.A. County Coroner's Office, where on December 9, 1976, Dr. Joseph Cho performed the autopsy. The deceased appears to be a white male, between 30 and 35. The deceased is 63 inches tall. The deceased weighs 50 pounds. The deceased is lacking hair, but for small patches around the back and sides of the head. The deceased is almost entirely petrified, covered in wax, and painted over. The deceased's ears have been posthumously lost, and his fingers, and his big toes. Deceased lungs appear tubercular. The body has been embalmed with arsenic. Cause of death? Gunshot wound to the chest. IDing the cadaver took more work still. After the initial autopsy, the lower mandible was removed in order to cross-check dental records. And it's at that point that a penny, minted 1924, fell out of the mouth, along with a ticket to Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime. By 1976, Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime was long gone, and so was Louis Sonny. But his son was still alive and was able to confirm for investigators what they already were coming to suspect. The body belonged to Elmer McCurdy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On New Year's Day, 1880, Sadie McCurdy gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. But Sadie was only 17, And the father wasn't around. Some said it was her cousin, Charles. So Sadie's brother, George, and his wife, Helen, agreed to adopt the baby and raise it as their own, to spare baby Elmer the shame of bastardhood. When Elmer was 10 years old, George died of tuberculosis. Elmer then moved, along with his mother and his aunt, who were actually his aunt and his mother, to Bangor, Maine. A few years later, Sadie came clean and told Elmer the truth. Elmer, it is said took the news poorly, and spent his teenage years in bitterness and drink. He apprenticed with his grandfather as a plumber in his late teens, but in 1900, that grandfather died, just a few weeks after his mother, and Elmer McCurdy, drunken, orphaned, and jobless, wandered the eastern seaboard, looking for work and alcohol. He took up off-and-on-again jobs for a couple of years as a lead miner, which explains the tuberculosis, But his alcoholism and irascibility got him repeatedly fired. 
he left the East Coast for Missouri, where he took up work as a plumber until he was arrested for public intoxication in 1905. Two years later, with nothing to his name and quite a bit to his liver, Elmer McCurdy joined the Army. He was stationed at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas as a machine gunner and had what appears to be an uneventful three years of service. But after he was discharged in late 1910, he had nothing lined up except for Wild West visions of crime and riches. He hooked up with an army pal just 12 days after he left the service, and the two were arrested for carrying a hacksaw, some chisels, medium-sized burlap sacks, gunpowder, and nitroglycerin in St. Joseph, Kansas. They were jailed on suspicion of burglary, but at trial argued that they were working on a new invention, a foot-controlled machine gun that they had hoped to sell to the army. They were found not guilty and released in January of 1911. Now a free man, Elmer's dreams of being a badass Old West outlaw were finally within reach. In the spring, he met up with a career criminal named Walter Jared and his crew. Together, they planned to hold up a train on the Oklahoma border that Elmer had been told carried a safe stuffed with $4,000 worth of valuables. Elmer's sales pitch was that he was an expert with nitroglycerin from his time in the Army, and he could use that expertise to get into the train safe. Probably, Elmer McCurdy was not an explosives expert, nitroglycerin or otherwise. He was a gunner, not a demolition man. The real evidence against Elmer's bomb-making proficiency came on the job. When the crew managed to get on board the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train, McCurdy placed so much nitro on the safe that the whole thing blew, and the crew was only able to haul off $450 worth of silver coins that had mostly been melted together in the blast. But Walter Jarrett didn't blame Elmer, for some reason, and the two decided, after the botched train robbery, that they should crime together some more. Walter brought on his brother, and the three decided to hit a bank. In September, they traveled east along the Kansas-Oklahoma border to the small town of Chautauqua and the citizen bank thereof. Walter's brother stood lookout while Jared and Elmer chipped through the wall with a hammer. Two hours later, they were through, and McCurdy again set one of his famous nitroglycerin bombs on the vault door. The explosion was huge. It tore the outer door off its hinges and flung it through the lobby, breaking everything in its path until it smacked against the front of the building with an enormous, attention-grabbing thud. When the smoke cleared, Elmer saw the fruits of his labor. Behind the burst vault door was... another vault door. Still standing strong. The other Jared brother ran for it, afraid the authorities would be alerted to the giant bomb blast, but Elmer convinced Walter to stick around. With one more nitro-fueled ignition, they'd be in the money. But try as he may, Elmer couldn't get the second charge to light, and eventually Walter convinced him to grab whatever money was loose and run for it. They made out with less than 150 bucks. The outlaw McCurdy wasn't accruing much of a track record. His first burglary attempt, whatever it was meant to be, was aborted before it even got started. He destroyed the load from the train heist, and the bank robbery had netted him pocket change. But McCurdy wasn't ready to give up yet. He had one more heist left in him. The big one. Two months after the Chautauqua bank bust, Elmer learned of a $400,000 cash shipment being delivered from the federal government to the Osage Nation in north-central Oklahoma. The money was to be delivered via the Missouri-Kansas-Texas train line, otherwise known as Katy, which we talked about in the episode Boomtown. 
On the night of October 6, 1911, Elmer and the Jared brothers stopped KD number 29 outside of Okessa. They uncoupled the engine and first car and chugged them down the tracks a ways to get clear of any possible witnesses. When the gang entered the express car, they were in for a disappointment. There was a Katy train hauling 400 grand to Osage County. It just wasn't number 29. Number 29 was a passenger train. In the car, they managed to find $46. Elmer was pissed off at his own stupidity and took it out on the conductor. He stole his watch, his coat, and two carboys of whiskey, ran off on foot alone, chugging his drink all the way. After two days and two nights of stumbling through the Oklahoma hills, Elmer McCurdy found his way to Rivard Farm, where he proceeded to ply the farmhands with some of his whiskey before blacking out drunk in a hay barn. Elmer McCurdy was a very bad criminal. We've established that much. But what's worse for him is that he was doing his bad criming in Osage County, the real Wild West where the law was used to dealing with competent criminals, like the Doolin-Dalton gang, also known as the Wild Bunch. Elmer's dreams of being a big-time outlaw had led him straight into the land of big-time lawmen. Walter Jared was caught on the scene and gave up Elmer McCurdy, and the posse started out looking for the $2,000 reward on his head. That's more than four times what he made off with. Stringer Fenton had been the state prohibition enforcement officer for Oklahoma. But in 1911, he was working for Katie. He brought his brother, Bob, and Washita County Deputy Collector Richard W. Dick Wallace in to track down the bounty. They got to the Reverd Farm just a few hours after McCurdy, and maybe even before he passed out in the barn, but decided to wait for morning to make their capture. At first light, Bob Fenton called out to McCurdy. He was surrounded, and it was time to give up. Elmer responded by firing at Bob. The shootout lasted more than an hour, with Elmer moving from spot to spot behind the barn walls, firing at each of his three pursuers in turn. Finally, Stringer worked out his hiding place, let off a single shot, and McCurdy went quiet. The posse moved in and discovered Elmer McCurdy, shot through the chest, dead. Elmer McCurdy lived a life of failure itinerant miner, unlicensed plumber, unremarkable soldier, and bumbling robber. He was a drunken stooge who dreamt of a remarkable life he was ill-equipped to create. But, of course, the story of Elmer McCurdy doesn't end on October 8, 1911. And the second act of his life, the part of his life that happened after his death, was more exceptional than he could have ever dreamed. Constant is brought to you by Full Stack Academy. In 1988, a Norwegian couple working in data processing and money transfers for the National Bank had a fun idea. What if they rerouted the social security payments of a couple dozen citizens to funnel into their own numbered Swiss bank account? One of them built out the hack while the other fabricated the accounts. Then they both fled to Switzerland and waited for their haul, an estimated 819 million kroner, to come in. But the haul ended up being even bigger than they dreamed more than a billion kroner, which would have been great for the pair, except that the program that they'd set up only went to nine digits. The system crashed, investigators were alerted, and the lovebirds were arrested, tried, and sent to prison. 
This never would have happened if they'd gone to Full Stack Academy. Full Stack is one of the longest running coding boot camps in the country, with alumni going on to work for Google, Jellyvision, and JP Morgan. They teach cutting edge software engineering skills with hands on training right here in Chicago at far less than the cost of going back to school. And Full Stack is making it even more affordable by giving the constant listeners an additional $500 off tuition for any cohorts through April 2020. So head to fullstackacademy.com slash constant and get $500 off. Again, that's fullstackacademy.com slash constant for $500 off your Full Stack Academy tuition. Full Stack Academy Chicago. Get coding, get hired. And by BetterHelp. Let's be honest, everybody has something in their life that gets in the way, in the way of success, relationships, or even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to remove those things. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs. Depression, family conflicts, anxiety, self-esteem, grief, even sleep trouble. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant, simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash theconstant. If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? Or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never, ever existed? Or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. Here's what we know. After he was shot, Wallace and the Fentons dragged the body to Pahuska, Oklahoma, and to the Johnson family funeral home. What we don't know is why the cadaver received the treatment it did. Some accounts say that the posse needed the body preserved until they could get a positive ID and collect their two grand reward. Others insinuate that he was embalmed under the assumption that somebody would come along to claim him eventually. Still others say that Joseph L. Johnson saw from the start, in Elmer's lifeless visage, a money-making opportunity. Whatever the case may be, Johnson preserved Elmer with an arsenic compound that hardened and dried him. He gave the newly mummified McCurdy a shave and a haircut and a decent set of clothes and put him in the back of the parlor. Six months later, McCurdy was still looking as good as the day he died, if not better. No family had come to claim the remains, and neither the Fentons nor Wallace had come back to pay for his services. So Johnson put a rifle in McCurdy's hands and placed him, standing up within a wicker coffin, under a wooden sign which read, The Bandit Who Wouldn't Give Up. 
he charged five cents a gander, which was placed in Elmer's mouth. The standing corpse of Elmer McCurdy became a kind of celebrity in Pawhuska. People came from miles around to see him. At one point, it's said that Johnson's kid slipped roller skates onto him and rolled him down the street to terrify onlookers. Word of the deathless desperado spread far and wide, and in a couple of years, Johnson was receiving regular offers to sell Elmer McCurdy. Being a fine, upstanding citizen, Johnson found these overtures deeply unethical and refused. He would continue to do the right thing, displaying a murdered man's corpse to the general public for money. But in 1916, the story of the Oklahoma outlaw made it to somebody else. Aver McCurdy, Elmer's long-lost brother. Aver and his other brother, Wayne, came to Pahuska and were galled by what they found there. Their brother's grim husk turned into a coin-operated tourist novelty. How dare you, Joseph L. Johnson, have you no scruples? Have you no decency? Aver demanded that Elmer be given over to him so that he could finally inter and give rest to his brother's remains at the family plot in San Francisco. Johnson had little choice but to give up his macabre side hustle, and so Aver set out by train with his brother in rightful tow. Did you catch what happened there? San Francisco? We know that Elmer's family came from Maine. And when could he have possibly accrued a brother, long lost or otherwise, let alone two? Elmer's train didn't go to San Francisco. It went, instead, to Arkansas City, Kansas, where Aver and Wayne were revealed as Charles and James Patterson, owners of the Great Patterson Shows, a traveling circus, trained animal act, and museum of freaks and oddities. From 1916 until 1922, Elmer toured the Southland as the outlaw who would never be captured alive in Patterson's sideshow. But that year, Patterson trimmed the operation down, focusing on the Patterson's trained animal show, and McCurney was sold to Lewis Sonny. Roy Gardner was everything Elmer McCurdy had wanted to be. Born in 1884 in Trenton, Missouri, he worked for a while as a miner and a horse farrier before joining the Army. In 1906, he deserted and fled to Mexico and began smuggling guns and ammo to the Constitutionalist Army of the Mexican Revolution. Eventually, he was found out, captured, and sentenced to death by firing squad. On March 29, 1909, he and three other Americans attacked their guards and escaped back to the U.S., where Gardner became a prize fighter, sparring heavyweight champion and great white hope J.J. Jeffries, who we should definitely talk about some other time. After his boxing career, Gardner went to San Francisco, where he gambled away everything he'd earned, robbed a jewelry store, was arrested, jailed at San Quentin, and then released after saving the life of a guard during a prison riot. He then began yet another career, this time as a welder, and did well enough by it to start his own company in 1918. While on a business trip to Tijuana two years later, Gardner once again lost all his money betting on horses. He returned to the States, traveled to San Diego, and there, in April of 1920, robbed a U.S. mail truck that was unexpectedly carrying $80,000. Unsure how to handle such a huge pull, Gardner went out to the desert to bury it. This proved conspicuous, and the cops nabbed him, shovel in hand. He was tried for armed robbery and sentenced to 25 years, to be served at McNeil Island near Seattle, Washington. But while he was being transported through Portland, Gardner peered out the window and yelled, Look at that deer! 
One of the marshals watching over him looked. Gardner grabbed his gun, handcuffed him to the other one, took 200 bucks off the pair, and jumped from the train. He spent the next year robbing trains before being captured again in the middle of a card game at a hotel in Roseville, California. He was sentenced to another 25 years at McNeil Island. On the train ride from California to Washington, Gardner grabbed a gun left by an associate under the toilet and held up another pair of U.S. Marshals, jumped to another train that was running alongside his, and disappeared into the Washington wilderness. Gardner was the most infamous criminal of his day, the last of the great train robbers. He was wanted by the FBI with a $5,000 reward on his head and newspapers across the country publishing pictures of his handsome face under the pseudonym The Smiling Bandit. To combat all that, Gardner wrapped his face in bandages and pretended to be a burn victim, landing in Centralia, Washington, and checking into the Oxford Hotel. A few days into his stay, an officer noticed a gun in his room and got wise. Gardner put up a fight, but was arrested, his bandages removed, his identity confirmed. He was tried and sentenced to yet another 25 years at McNeil Island. That's not the end of Gardner's story. He finally was successfully transported to McNeil, but managed to escape during a prison league baseball game. He pulled off some more train robberies, got arrested a few more times, was sent to Leavenworth, escaped from Leavenworth, was sent to Atlanta Federal Prison, attempted to escape from Atlanta Federal Prison, was deemed too dangerous and difficult for Atlanta Federal Prison, and finally landed in Alcatraz. But what's important about Gardner for us is that Centralia, Washington police officer who managed to nab him. His name was Lewis Sonny. Buoyed by the tiniest touch of fame that was having helped temporarily apprehend 1921's most well-known felon, Sonny left the police to become, well, something. He became something, all right. He started producing short films, recreating famous robberies, heists, and shootouts, especially those of Roy Gardner. He began collecting crime memorabilia. He took all of this on the road with a traveling museum he called the March of Crime, where folks were charged to walk through a hodgepodge of murder memorabilia, criminal artifacts, crudely made short films, and wax figures of famous outlaws like Jesse James and the Doolin Dalton gang. And at the front door of the March of Crime, there to welcome the slack-jawed looky-loos was Elmer McCurdy. Eventually, Lewis Sonny moved on to the business of full-length nudie exploitation films, including 1936's Hellavision, a kaleidoscopic cut-up made up of random bits of an Italian adaptation of Dante's Inferno, some gratuitous titty dancing, and more crime recreations. It starred real criminals, including John Dillinger and, yes, that's right, Roy Gardner himself. That same year, Gardner and Sonny starred in You Can't Beat the Rap, a smutty reenactment of their fateful hotel meeting, directed by the father of modern exploitation films, Dwayne Esper. Sonny produced many of Esper's big projects, including Marijuana, a forerunner to Reefer Madness, How to Undress in Front of Your Husband, and Sex Maniac, which is counted among the worst films ever made by the Razzies. In 1933, Esper made Narcotic! A full frontal-laced morality tale about the dangers of opium, which contains enough offensive yellow face to make breakfast at Tiffany's blush. For the promotional tour of Narcotic, Sonny lent Esper the body of Elmer McCurdy, 
who at this point was shrunken and shriveled and unsightly. Esper put McCurdy in the lobbies of the theaters showing Narcotic, with a message saying this was the body of a dead dope fiend. Lewis Sonny died in 1949, but his son Dan took up the family business, becoming the king of cinematic softcore of the 50s and 60s, producing hits like Striptease Girl, A Virgin in Hollywood, and The Notorious Daughter of Fanny Hill. Dan put Elmer in storage for a while, but lent him out once more for a role in a peep show pseudo-sequel to Todd Browning's Freaks, which contains precisely none of the artistry of its unofficial predecessor. This is the story of Jade Cochran, a country girl who knew there had to be something better than waiting tables in a greasy roadside stand. Give me my check, Jade. She didn't know what or where it was, but she was going to get it. Even if she had to lie, cheat, beg, or steal for it, she was going to get it. For Jade Cochran. When the carnival came to town and left, Jade left with it. From that day on, something evil hauntingly clouded the trail of the gypsy caravan. Filmed on location on one of America's largest traveling carnivals where it could have happened. It began with an argument between Blackie and Pretty Boy. What you're missing here is two men taking repeated comical stage slaps at one another in a barn, maybe? That ended when a man was maimed. You'll shudder in panic when you behold lust-inspired human combat, all the more appalling in crimson-stained color. You'll recoil in horror as something barbaric occurs behind the tents and tinsel of a monster midway on the alley of nightmares. You'll gasp in astonishment when you witness nature's human mistakes. You'll see it all and more when you see She-Freak and tell no one what you see. 1967's She-Freak, a moment that Dan Sonny and director David F. Friedman consider a masterpiece. And boy... What a tragic misconception that is. A year later, Sonny sold McCurdy along with all of his father's wax figures to Spoonie Singh, owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. It was 1968, and it seems that by this point, nobody was left to know who Elmer McCurdy really was, or that he was anybody at all, or that he was real. Singh quickly sold Elmer off to the Haunted Cave Haunted House, just outside of Mount Rushmore. The new owners didn't much care for their acquisition, especially after its ears and other extremities began falling off in the wind. They returned it to Singh, who briefly considered displaying it, but decided it wasn't realistic enough for the wax museum. So he again sold McCurdy, this time to Ed Leersch, owner of the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California home to the laugh in the dark, and the shooting location for The Six Million Dollar Man, Season 4, Episode 18, Carnival of Spies. In total, it is thought that Elmer McCurdy traveled more than 40,000 miles in the decades after his embalming, more than enough to go around the entire world. It's an unbelievable story. And the L.A. Coroner's Office didn't. Their investigators tracked back every step of the journey they could. They talked to Ed Leersch, they talked to Spoonie Singh, they talked to Friedman and Sonny and Esper. Finally, they brought in Dr. Clyde Snow, 
forensic anthropologist who ID'd the bodies of John F. Kennedy, Joseph Mengele, and King Tutankhamun. After examining the body for telltale scars, Snow superimposed the silhouette of the neon red carnival attraction on top of photos of McCurdy. It was a match. With that, the chief medical examiner of L.A. County, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, signed the official name of the improbable John Doe. The story hit the papers, the radio, the television news. But there was still another question to answer. Now that they knew it was Elmer McCurdy, what should they do with him? The answer came from Fred Olds, president of the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, a historical preservation group that also oversaw the Boot Hill area of Guthrie, Oklahoma's Summit View Cemetery. 300 people, including cast and crew from The Six Million Dollar Man, came to Guthrie on April 22, 1977, to attend the burial of Elmer McCurdy, next to Bill Doolin, head of the infamous Doolin-Dalton gang that inspired him. The Doolins' wild bunch ransacked their way through Oklahoma, Kansas, and New Mexico, killing more than a half-dozen marshals, robbing trains and stagecoaches of tens of thousands of dollars. Bill finally had to be put down at close range by two barrels of a 12-gauge shotgun. Roy Gardner managed to steal $350,000 and escaped some of the hardest penitentiaries in America before he finally was locked in solitary confinement at Alcatraz, the most feared prison in history. Elmer McCurdy blew up one safe, failed to blow up another. He robbed the wrong train and never made out with anything more than pocket change. Yet, in the end, authorities understood that Elmer McCurdy was far more slippery than any bandit or outlaw in the history of the West. Nothing so average as an impassable island prison or 36 pellets of buckshot would be good enough to hold the man who traveled the circumference of the globe and hid out for 66 years from the grave itself. There at Boot Hill in Summit View Cemetery, next to Bill Doolin, Elmer McCurdy was buried beneath two feet of cement, the greatest outlaw of all time. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. A special thanks go out today to all the people who've already chosen to support the show especially to Jennifer Sampson, Kevlin Hayes, Andrew Hall, K. Joshua McKelton, Mike Kennedy, and Taylor Hudnall. Thank you, every last one of you. Last month, the company that I work for spontaneously dissolved my department and moved me to a new position. It was a cool job, a good job, but it was also a bit more intensive than the old one. And the balance that had already been tenuous between my 9 to 5 and the moonlighting that is this thing you're listening to became impossible to manage. So, I quit. If you've thought about supporting the show before, or thought about thinking about supporting the show before, this would be a really great time to do that. Go to patreon.com slash theconstant or find a link in the show notes. And if you can't afford it, or even if you can, please, please tell a friend. Subscribe, rate, review. Find us on your preferred social media platforms. Onwards and upwards. We are part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Soonish, a podcast about the intersection between the present and the future, and how people shape technology, and technology shapes people. If you're looking for an entrance point into Soonish, I'm recommending taking a listen to A Future Without Facebook, 
wherein host and producer Wade Rausch examines the sometimes conscious and sometimes unconscious choices that Facebook has made that have changed society frequently for the worse, and the choices society can make to get Facebook to work better for all of us. And if that doesn't sound important to you, I would like to live where you live. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the mysterious couch tomb, a sealed and unopenable mausoleum vault that sits on the south end of Lincoln Park with God only knows who or how many inside, this has been The Constant. Oh, um, when Mark Taylor was a kid, he went to the pike, rode the laugh in the dark, and was indelibly terrified. Years later, Taylor got a job working for Mattel Toys, who were in need of a villain for their new He-Man action figure. Mark remembered the day-glow skeleton of Elmer McCurdy, and from him created Skeletor. See? See? It pays to stick around to the end of the episode.